one of the uh, challenges when speaking in a, in, a, in a situation, a venue like this, is how much do I share? <laughs> how much time do I have? I mean, there's so much, as we all know in God's Word, even when you're looking at just maybe three or four verses, so much that God has to share. And so often, I struggle with that. Just one verse, and maybe have weeks on it, but... Um, but God's going to show up. God's going to speak. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing up. Thank you for speaking to us as you have already done this morning. Thank you for your word that is living and active. That is it sharper very bone and marrow of who we are, but it's life and it's giving and it's your words. The word became flesh and lived among us. So, Father, as we open up your word, as we spend just a little bit of time this morning in it, that we would, like Jesus said, that we would not be a man who looks in a mirror and Jesus looks away, he says, hey, look like that we would read your word and then apply it. Father, thank you for your word, for the, the guarantee of your word, the purity of your word, the living of your power, I guess, producing your word in our lives, both individually, but also Father, may we learn what you say to us. Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting at verse 4. But I wanted to just really quickly before we get started there, just do a little recap. Um, we are now, again, we've started um, going through the book of Second Peter. Pastor Dan started us off um, just looking at kind of the, the, the first part of, of, of chapter one. And, and I, what, I, what I loved about that is, again, it was a reminder as, as Peter's writing this letter, he wants to make, he wants us to start out with this idea that his message, that the message of Jesus Christ is true and reliable, right? And so he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, For we do not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were what? It says eyewitnesses, right, of his majesty. Then if you go to verse 19, it says, We also have the prophetic message of something completely reliable will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises within your hearts. Right? So he wants to make sure before he gets into kind of these this teaching of false teachers and false prophets and, and their destruction, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about this morning, he wants us to make sure that we understand completely that God's word is reliable and that is I mean, he goes on to say in verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never has its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's said that there's nothing in this that is man-made. This is completely true and from the Word of God, from 
God's mouth. And, and then um, Kenny, a couple weeks ago, really did a great job, I think a wonderful job of really kind of this idea of the danger within, um, again, because we see in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter starts talking about this, these false prophets, false teachers. That the, the, the danger doesn't come necessarily from without, from outside of the church, right? Because, again, he shared how we have a perfect example within history of, of China who has had extreme persecution against the church. And what the government tried to do had the opposite effect. And we see Christianity has grown tremendously in that country. What Peter says and what Kenny reminds us of, that it's actually the 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 false teachers of the persecution within the church, these kind of sheep in wolves' clothing. And so he talks briefly about five different kinds of, like, false teachers and, and the heretic. So this person who purposely teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. So they'll get up in front of their congregation, in front of people, and blatantly contradict the essential teachings of the Christian faith. We have also the false prophet, person who claims to be gifted by God to speak special revelation outside of scripture, new authoritative words for uh, prediction, teaching, rebuke, or encouragement. We have the charlatan, the person who uses Christianity and the proclamation of the gospel as a means of personal enrichment. And we have the tickler, which I thought was hilarious. That says, as a person who trades popularity and fame for the world, followers of people who teaches only parts of the Bible that deem that be a or they deem acceptable, he gives listeners only what they want to hear. He preaches a partial gospel, which is no gospel at all. And then he advantage of other people, unapologetically uses and abuses others to feed his own lust, whether it's through money, sex, or power. And so just kind of setting the stage in a way of kind of what we, we can see and within the church, um, and how, what kind of what we need to be aware of, and then what Peter does, starting at verse four, is he gives three examples uh, of destruction, or um, what I what I'm kind of saying is the fate of the wicked and the rescue of the righteous. So the fate of the wicked, so judgment and mercy. We have a God who is just. I'm thankful for that. We also have a God who is merciful, full of mercy, and I'm thankful for that. Amen? I don't want to have a God who is just all love but no justice. I don't want to have a God who's all just but no mercy. I love that we have a God who is both perfectly. And so he, he yeah, so he talks about these three examples of, of justice or the fate of the wicked, but he also then gives two examples how he rescued the righteous. Um, and, and we're going to little talk a little bit about that. But first, I want to define quickly wickedness. So the Greek word for wickedness is poneria, something like that, which is used in Ephesians chapter 6 when, he, when, when Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. But it says it means depravity, iniquity, or malice. And, and malice means to do evil with purpose desires and doing so with intent. So doing anything with malice means that this is an intentional commission of a wrongful act 
is absent from any justification for the person committing it. It is done with the intent to cause harm to others, most of all to God. It is a conscious violation of the law that injures an individual or individuals. We see a great example of this within Psalm 51. We have King David, um, who we all, most of us, if not all of us, know about King David, right? And, and what was, what was uh, some, somebody, God called King David what? Get a title for him. A man after God's own heart. What an incredible, yeah, I want God to say that about me. I want God to say that about you, that, that you're a woman, a man, a, we're, we're a person after God's own heart. And, and really, if you look at the life of David from beginning to end, that's truly who he was. But in the midst of that, he did a lot of bad things. Right? He had a lot of sin. And he slept with a woman that was not his wife. And when she got pregnant to try to cover that sin, that act, right, he tries to bring her husband, Uriah, from the battlefield to sleep with her, thinking, well, maybe then people will think, you know, that that's his baby. But Uriah is a man of honor, and won't do that and won't sleep with his wife because he's like, well, I can't do that when other the men are on the battlefield. So that didn't work for David. And so he sends him back to the battlefield, but what he decides to do is send a message to his general and says, put Uriah in, like in the front. Have the men step back, but don't let him come. And he's killed. He's killed in battle basically because of King. And, and so you have a man who finds himself giving into temptation one evening, and it just has these flow of events that happen in his life to the fact to where Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and reveals that, well, lets him know, I know what you've done. God knows what you've done. God knows what you've done. And then he writes this psalm in Psalm 51. Again, this is King David, a man after God's own heart. Have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love. According to your goodness, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Pause. I mean, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the child that God took from him? Like, didn't you sin against them? harm against them? You know, but what is David realizing right here? That the, the, the most important person that he has sinned against is not. Bathsheba or Uriah, even this child, it was against God. Right? He says, You, and only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you sin. Truly, I was sinful at birth, sinned from the time my mother conceived. Wow. So you might be thinking, Wow, Grant, this message is so encouraging. It's going to get encouraging, right? But as far as humanity is concerned, we know that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
Then it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one. No one. Right? So Paul, again, is just saying, hey, again, Paul has this title. I'm the, I, I'm the chief of sinners. Right? Again, we've talked about Romans chapter 7 where he talks about the struggle that he has with sin. So, yeah, it's, it, it isn't discouraging in some ways because I think all of us, including myself, can relate with that passage because we end up doing things and thinking things and saying things that are contrary to the person that God has created us to be, to the person that we want to be. Right? We'll make a comment to our spouse or to our child or someone we work with, and as soon as that comes out, we're like, oh, that is not... I am. That is not who God created me. That's not the person, the man, the woman, the husband, the father, the friend that I want to be. You know? But man, this is where it gets good because what I want to do right now is I want to define how do we define righteous or righteousness? Because the question is can we be righteous? Can we have righteousness in our lives if we know, right, that there's nothing righteous within us? within our sinful nature, within us, if there's nothing righteous, if I can't be righteous because I can't, Paul couldn't, you can't, then how do I then be righteous? So so why did, you know, you look at Noah, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with Noah and, and Lot so per, per se, but they were called righteous. God considered them righteous. And we know from their lives, which, again, I can't get into much, that these guys were far from righteous men. Okay, they were far from being perfect. They had their issues. They had their flaws. A lot probably more than Noah. You know, we don't know a lot about Noah, but we know he is a man, and we know that Paul reminds us that none of us are righteous, so we know that he is not perfect, even though he is faithful, which I'm so thankful for. So why did God consider them righteous? How are they or you and I considered righteous? All of us are born into complete bondage to sin. So this is in Romans chapter 3. We're unable to do righteousness on our own. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says that our attempts to produce righteousness on our own are disgusting in the eyes of God. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is encouraging. It says, we have all become like one who is righteous. All our righteous Like the wind, take us away. That's in Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, Again, we all become like one who is unrighteous. All our righteousness are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. You know, the Bible clearly defines righteousness as something his people should pursue. You see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, I want you to Right, so we know that's what God wants to do, right? To flee temptation, to, to flee uh, 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 wickedness and evil and, and those things, especially in our lives that we, it's just so evident that this is not of God, that this is evil, wicked. Um, it says to flee that and to pursue, pursue God, pursue Christ. But yet we are unable to uh, produce that. We're, we're unable to maybe, I will, I will say produce that. So where do we get it? Our righteousness is imputed from Jesus through the atoning work that he accomplished on the cross. You see that in Philippians. 
chapter 1, verse 11. We couldn't produce it, but Christ produces it. He produces it for us. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. Okay, let me read that again. We are made right by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So again, Noah wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. Lot wasn't perfect, far from it, but he was faithful. And even more so, God was faithful to them. God was faithful to them as he's faithful to us. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Remember, there is a standard that perfection has. We can't, on our own, reach that standard. We can't reach that perfection. We never will. But thank you that Christ has done where he says here, yeah, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. You and I are made right with God. We are made righteous with God when we believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood for you and I. This sacrifice shows that God was uh, being fair when he held back and did not punish those sinners in, in times past where he was looking ahead and including them in, in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. His righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in him. Guys, that is incredibly good news. Right? Because, again, it's, it's not nothing that we can do to produce or to become righteous of our own selves. It's what Jesus has done for us to make us right for Think of the implications of what that means for our lives on a day-to-day basis when, again, we desire, like Paul does, like all of us, to to be the the men and the women that God has called us to be, the child that he's called us to be, the husband, right, the wife, the the co-worker, the friend, and we fall short of that all the time. I do. Good shepherd, he knows me, and he loves me. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for our sake, he might become the righteousness of God. Right? You know that, that great exchange that happened. Now that we've defined what wickedness and righteousness is like, let's look at three examples of God's judgment and two examples of God's mercy. The first example we see of God's judgment is, is found in verse 4. But let's go ahead and go there. And so he says, in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into the darkness, hell for judgment. Okay, so real quickly, example one, the first example is the fall or the sin of the angels. Great website, and I just called gotquestions.com. Um, 
something that I think is a good website and something I think is very helpful. It says, why does Satan call himself? Satan fell because of his pride. He desired to be God, not to be a servant of God. The two passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which are two kind of, they're, they're passages that are talking about human kings, uh, wicked kings, but also kind of has a symbolism of, of Satan and his fall from, from glory or grace. And it says, describes Satan as an exceedingly beautiful angel. Satan was likely to be the highest of all angels, the anointed cherub, the most beautiful of all God's creation. wanted to be God, and interestingly enough, that desire is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? He said, you, you too, you can be like God. So who came up with that? How does Satan fall from heaven? Actually, a fall is not an accurate description. Right? God pushed him out doesn't say specifically that a third angel went with him, but there is a passage in the book of Revelation where if you read it and interpret that way, it's about a third that were kicked out of heaven with him. And some were immediately brought into chains, into utter dungeons, into darkness. Some were, like Satan, allowed to roam this earth. And so again, we see that example as a fall of Satan and the angels. So he punishes the wickedness in that and deals with that. And then we have the second example of God's judgment mercy. It's found in verse 5 where he continues to say, in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on his ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven, other, and seven others. So, again, I'm not going to go into much of, of that, but we, again, know well, let's look at Genesis chapter 6, 9 through 14. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and of course their wives. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people of the earth had corrupted their way. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy them and the earth, so make yourself an ark. The heart of God. Guys, it grieves the heart of God because Scripture tells us He saw what the world had become. He saw what humanity had become. And he could no longer deal and tolerate that kind of sin. But he saw a man who was faithful, a man who was blameless, a man who walked Not just him, but six others, seven others to go with him. And, and we're so thankful, right, that he did that. And then example number three is the fallen cities and the rescues, the rescue of Lot. Um, but anyway, but um, basically we have Sodom and Gomorrah. We have God says, I want you to home, and I want you to take uh, family and livestock and all these debts, and I want you to go to this land that, that I'm going to give you. 
does that, and then he goes, and as he goes, he becomes wealthier and has more land, and he has more goats and all that kind of stuff, and more wealth, and but also, Matthew Lot also all this stuff. He says at one point in the book of Genesis that it was so big. And it says that Lot chooses some of the best kind of land. It's called Sodom, Gomorrah, these two cities that were known for their depravity and known for their wickedness and known for sin. Um, but Lot sees this little land. This kind of an environment, and because of that, um, uh, because of that, we just see the effect of that, that has somewhat on us. But I, I think even when he does stay um, faithful, there's got to be some kind of effect. But it's interesting because we see in, and I just want to look at this in, in chapter 18 of verse Genesis. You don't necessarily have to turn there. But we have three visitors that come to Abraham to tell him that his wife's going to become pregnant, which, again, she laughs in verse 15. of Because she says, I'm past the age of childbearing, right? But these three visitors, two of them are angels. We believe the third is the Lord himself and what we call theophany, which is God coming in as a physical presence, as a physical being. And uh, they tell him, uh, so she laughs, but, um, but they also realize that Sodom and Gomorrah is, ready to be destroyed. And it's interesting because as this is told to Abraham, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and the sin so grievous that I will go down and see if they have, if, if they have done as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So God stayed, the Lord stayed. Abraham remained standing. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you keep away the righteous from your condition? What, what if there are 50 righteous people in the Abraham, God believed him. Not judge all the earth. Right. The Lord says, Hey, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. But Abraham spoke again, Come, Lord, I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is less than 50? I will destroy the whole city for the lack of fighting. I find 45. I'll do it if I find 30. And then he said, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? What is this showing us about God's character? Right? It's like, hey, Abraham, I'm willing. 
I'm willing. If you can find this many people, but he goes, all right, so for the sake of 20, what if there's 20? What if only 10? honor well we know the rest of the story we know that there weren't even 10 that really it was Lot who lived not too far away and his wife and actually his sons never left they thought he was kind of exaggerating with what God was going to his daughters and his wife, and we also know his wife, um, who was not told to turn back, turned back, and God called him out at that moment. <clears throat> but he's rescued. He is rescued. It says absolutely, actually that the had to grab their hands and get him out of there as soon as they could before the destruction came upon these not perfect. Made mistakes. But God, out of his love and faithfulness, he bought rescued from that destruction. You know, God can deliver the godly out of destruction. Sometimes her own making, sometimes not. The word deliver in the Greek means to draw draw to oneself to rescue, that God would draw us to himself, that he would rescue us to himself. The example that Peter gives above proves that God is never in a hurry, but always takes care of those who are faithful to him. The Old Testament is replete with such examples. Although God manifests himself differently in the Christian age than the age in which we are of Christ, he said he has given us full assurance that he still knows how to deliver Deliver us from evil. Later, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 13, I think it's going to be up here, it says, No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you also provide a way out. The Christian of every age has that insurance that we in the 21st century are no exception. Temptations abound around us. We must fight against them. Christians are in the world, but we are what? Not of the world. There was a Christian group in Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. Christian rock band, and uh, my wife is laughing because I'm like, anyway, not like her. Okay. They had a song called, like, Not of This World, this idea that, that yeah, I'm, that we're just kind of really just passing through, that our citizenship 
Like, my main citizenship is not American. It's not even, like, from my adopted country in the UK. It, it's my citizenship is in heaven. Yes, I have an American passport. And maybe someday, if I'm here long enough, I might have a British passport. But my main passport is a heavenly passport, right? Our time on this earth is like a small, small time on this line. Um, the fact that we're going to live all eternity. It's just it's so small. We're just passing through. Oh, my gosh. So but we are in this world. God, remember his prayer for his disciples before he went to be with the Father. He said, don't, don't take them out of it. But Holy Spirit, come. able to resist temptation. It says, God has promised us help in the fight against the wiles of the devil. And I, I like that term, wiles. So I'm like, what does that mean? So wiles equals lure or to entice. To lure and to entice. So again, God has promised us help in the fight against the, the, the lure or the enticement of the enemy. Promise to be with us and to give us that strength and that courage to be able to fight that. But we, like the Apostle Paul, can know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As I wrap this up, I, I, I know a lot of Christians that would listen to this message, especially the last part of it, and and, and does mean that God's going to deliver me from every temptation? Is God going to deliver me from every evil, from every wickedness? Um, you know, is, is, am I never going to be affected by the evil that is in this world? No. And, and let me, let me, what do you mean by that? Because... Faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about we, what we do not see. And he talks about again, by faith Abel brought, brought God a better offering than Cain. By not by by death. By faith Noah, who warned about things that not Noah's world, built an ark for his family. By faith Abraham called to a place he would later receive as heir because he obeyed and went. He's talking about by faith Isaac blessed. Right, so many of these, these are people that were literally delivered out of or did not experience death. Um, and then it goes into verse 36, which says, Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and stripes. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goats, destitute, persecuted, and afflicted. The world. The world was not worthy of him. Sorry, I've read this one how many times now. I'm not sure why. I took that out with the Lord. But it says the world was not worthy of him. 
wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Gosh, we know of so many Christians around the world who are losing their lives because of their faith, because of their But wow, what a place we get to go to. What a home that awaits for me. What a mansion I get to live in, right? What a, I mean, I, so, yes, we may not experience that, that, that here on this earth, but one of the glories, one of the things about being a child of God is that we have a hope. We get to be with him, with each other, in all of eternity. And I don't want to see anybody have to be persecuted or martyred for their faith. I would hate for that to happen. But I am not of this world. Of this world, and neither are you and I. Neither are you. We're not of this world. Beloved, that's a true promise. I want to end with John 6. It says this, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Forgive this, but take I have overcome the world. Like he's saying, you're going to have trials, you're going to have, you're going to be persecuted. You may, you may lose your life because of your take heart because I have overcome the world. I have provided an opportunity for you to be in a relationship with me and to spend eternity with me and to have life here on this earth abundant, even if that abundance doesn't look like like what our world would describe as abundant. Prosperity. What we would describe as having this in the midst of persecution or trials or temptation. People have to actually suffer alone. But for most of us, not all of us, we are not alone. Amen? Lord, thank you for just reminding us that, yeah, there is a place for persecution. But, Father, thank you. Thank you that you show mercy. Show mercy.
Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for going to the Martyrdom, so that can be restored for the Thank you for both just Father, may we walk Let's